I'm here with Dr. Carlo Di Clemente, a board-certified psychologist, emeritus professor of psychology at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and recognized expert on addiction, health behavior change, and motivation, to talk about making and maintaining healthy changes to behavior when it comes to substance misuse and abuse. Dr. Di Clemente has written extensively about substance abuse treatment, including his book, Substance Abuse Treatment and the Stages of Change, now in its second edition, and has received numerous awards, including a presidential citation from the American Psychological Association. Dr. Di Clemente, thanks for joining me on the Psychology Hour. It's my pleasure, Dan. Thank you. At the outset, Carlo, I, I want to note for listeners that this conversation is intended to share general information only and doesn't serve as formal mental health advice. And as we wrap up later, we'll, we'll cover, cover a few options for where to seek out care from a health service psychologist or another qualified mental health care provider. But to start, I, I'd, I'd like to ask your perspective in a real basic sense here on how to recognize signs of substance misuse or abuse in oneself. Uh, that's a good question. Uh, so all substances of abuse, and we're talking anywhere from nicotine to alcohol to opiates to methamphetamines to cocaine uh, to marijuana, all substances of abuse um, reach the brain and they reach the pleasure centers of the brain. And all of these substances actually change the brain. So they affect the brain, the body, and our emotions and, and reactions to things. And, and some of that is functional and, and helpful. And so alcohol has been around a long time. Um, it's used uh, in social situations uh, and, 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 and under control and under self-regulation, uh, some of these substances are not problematic. It doesn't mean they couldn't become problematic relatively easily. Um, so, so what we make try to make a distinction is is when does a substance become a problem? Well, some people say, well, if it causes problems, it's a problem. <laughs> so, so you can use that definition. That sometimes is gets you further down the road, however, than you need to go. I would say when you start. I had a colleague of mine tell me that. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. The problem becomes when it changes from a drink to a drug. So a lot of times what you need to do is look at why am I using this and am I using it, using it excessively? Because that's the real challenge. I mean, when, when do we go to excess? And our bodies tell us when we go to excess. We, we, our brains react. I mean, a, a hangover the next morning is a sign that you overdid it last night. You know, not remembering what happened is a sign that you overdid it. Uh, falling asleep at a time when you shouldn't is a sign that there's, much, there's too much. So, so what you have to do is find signs for yourself about what's excessive. And, you know, some people say, okay, well, I want to go, I, I'm going out tonight and have a blast. And so I'm going to be excessive and I'm not going to drive home and I'm, I'm going to be okay. Okay, so long as you can choose to do that and then not continue that or continually do that on a regular basis, um, you know, maybe that's okay. Excess still isn't good, but it's under self-regulation. It's when the behavior starts to elude our self-regulation, when we do it 
even when we did said, well, I'm not going to do it. And then you end up doing it. Or when you do it, oh, I'm not going to have, I'm only going to have one drink and then you have four. Um, when you overdo it, when it becomes that I have to have this substance in one way or another to be able to function, uh, to be able to feel good emotionally, to be able to manage my life, whenever that gets into that process, then you're moving into misuse and, and, and beginning the road into serious uh, problems or disorders. So the, I like the part that you shared about recognizing signs within one's own body. And I've heard before, there's also an aspect about recognizing signs in your environment or feedback from other people. Could you talk a little bit about getting feedback from others with, with relationships or with your finances or with professional troubles? Are those, are those relevant to consider also? Definitely. Uh, and again, that's, you know, when other people start noticing uh, beyond yourself, that's where I think then you're down into that uh, noticing problems. Uh, it gets to be causing problems. But yes, I think other people, uh, you know, if they really care about you, will mention that. And many times people get pretty defensive when, you, when, when a, a significant other says, wait a minute, I think you drank too much last night. But it's really important to listen to what the perspective is of someone else. You, you can't see yourself. And a lot of times, if, especially if you're drinking a lot, you don't remember what you did. So there was a, a campaign in the, in, among the service members in the army about don't be that guy because everybody knows what that guy is who does or that gal is who, who drinks too much because they do silly things, they think they're funny, they do a lot of stuff, but they're not. And so if people give you feedback like that, it's really important to listen and to self-examine rather than to defend and deflect. Carlo, often feedback comes from family members, but how can that feedback from, from family be most helpful? Well, I think that's another question because I think a lot of times the feedback that they get is done in anger uh, it's done while the individual is inebriated or under the influence of the substance, uh, and neither of those is good. I think you need a time uh, when, when the individual has at least is as sober as could be. Uh, you need a time where you're telling them that you love them and you care about them, and that's the reason that you're really giving them this feedback. Um, and you need to give that feedback based on some of the things that you've seen and heard and the behaviors that you saw. That, I think, gives the, has the best shot. Even then, it might not work. But, but again, a lot of times families uh, yell or, or threaten things, and then they don't follow through. And so that's a second piece of this, that if you're going to say something and threaten stuff, you have to follow through on some of that or, or don't say it. Don't, don't threaten them. Otherwise, they don't believe that there's con these consequences are going to happen. So those are a couple of ways that, that, that the feedback could be most helpful. I think that's great feedback. And I want to return to what you're saying about self-reflection and self-regulation in, in a little bit. But I know that in one of your books, Changing for Good, you note that some people, you know, some people make multiple attempts to change substance use behaviors like drinking or smoking. Can you tell me what's important for listeners to know when, when it comes to, 
to changing for good? Well, one of the things that we thought early on in terms of understanding the, the change process for lots of different changes is that it's a journey and it's not a single event. I know if you, if you look at the Nike ads, it says, just do it. Uh, but that's not usually how people make changes. They don't just do it. They think about it. They have to become concerned that it's important to do. They think about it. They find reasons that are really going to support a decision that says, I'm going to make this change. Uh, then they uh, build their commitment uh, to be able to follow through with that and build a plan that's going to work for them. How are they going to do this and how are they going to make this change? Uh, and then they've got to implement the plan. I make a joke sometime when I'm talking, I go, you know, it's great to join a gym. That's preparation. But, but it doesn't do anything for physical activity unless you actually go to the gym. So you have to implement the plan and you have to implement it in a way that creates a new pattern of behavior. And, and that's why action, we think, takes three to six months before you can really say, oh yeah, I've got this on, uh, in, in a pattern of behavior. And then you move to maintenance where the challenge is you're trying to integrate that new behavior into your lifestyle. We don't want to say this is, I, I, I'm just not doing it. You want them to be moving to a more positive. It's not just taking away something, it's moving to something that's more positive, a healthy, a healthy life, a, a more fulfilled way to kind of interact with the world. So that's this journey, and that's why it's not just, it's a, it's a process, not just a, a single product. I'm thinking about what you said, that changing for some people requires multiple attempts and that involves energy, time, I think a host of personal resources and in turn expending all of, all of those things can lead likely in many cases to, to feel frustrated or frankly just being discouraged or, or resigned that you'll never change for good in the way that, that you're describing it. What, what's your take on how to manage that? So a couple of thoughts there. I, I do think that people get discouraged. It does take a lot of time. And if you've got a lot of, I mean, the reason that most of the people who have quit already like smoking are, are the more resourced, the more higher educated, uh, the people who have more financial means, people who, you know, do, do not have mental health or substance abuse problems. I mean, they have more resources in order to cope and build a, a new life. So, so you do need to kind of find the resources and find the, the energy and the time to do it. And other problems will interfere with your ability to kind of move forward in that. So you may have to deal with other problems before you can be successful. But the other thing is that, you know, discouragement it's, it's a process. It's a learning process. It's how you have to learn how to change. You know, nobody learned how to ride a bike the first time they sat on a bicycle. Most of us fell over multiple times. But, but that you got back up and you got on and you learned how to do it and you learned from your mistakes. And, and that's why I think it's really important to kind of think about relapse as a, as a part of the road to recovery. <laughs> Not, not, a, not a kind of a, a, a detour that takes you off and doesn't allow you to get back on the road. In that process that you're describing, 
And I'll just be direct with a, maybe a, a narrative that we see in, in broader society that having a substance misuse abuse problem or struggling with addiction is, is a kind of personal weakness. And I want to just raise that head on with you and, and get your reaction to that and, and, and how you might convey how that's not the case. Well, I think, you know, all of these substances, as I said, really affect your whole ability to self-regulate. So you may have had some problems with self-regulation earlier and whatever. So you may have some weaknesses that do contribute to you be having, becoming addicted, but, but it's not a weakness. It's an addiction. It, it takes over your life. The substance changes the brain. The brain needs that substance now to feel good or to feel, as many of my people said, who I've worked with said, to feel normal. So that's the, the challenge. And we don't stigmatize people who have diabetes or other kinds of problems. I mean, it, it, it's really sad that addictions have become kind of this, it's a moral problem, it's, it's a weakness problem, it's a failure of the individual. When, you know, you know it's a condition caused somewhat by some of the thing some of the choices that people make uh and the biology and the neurochemistry and the physiology and the psychology uh and and that's what it is but that's you could also say that about depression you could also say that about diabetes you could also say that about the, uh, obesity so we have uh, i think unfortunately stigmatized addictions uh, and actually that supports the fact that, oh, maybe they can't change. And that's just not true. I mean, I, I make an argument that, you know, this country, we have had made the biggest change in addiction um, ever by quitting smoking. In 1964, 42% um, of the population smoked. We're now down to under 15% there are 40 million people in the United States who have quit smoking and are successfully remaining quit. Former smokers outnumber current smokers. So when people say, oh, people can't change, that's just not true. Uh, we have myths. The more you stigmatize it, the harder it becomes to change. But addiction is a, a, a chronic condition that can be changed over time with a learning perspective. This is where the journey part of the recovery really comes in. I, I like your point earlier, the Nike point you made when you said, you know, there's this notion, just do it. Like it's this one time discrete event. But from what I'm gathering, you're, you're conveying is that it, it's so much more than that. Yes, clearly. It, it is a process, a journey uh, that individuals have to kind of go through. And, and what the stages of change do is really kind of identify some of the tasks that people need to do and do well enough to make the change happen. Uh, and that's why recycling, uh, after people have kind of uh, failed to make the change, kind of going back and recycling through the process and getting it right because people do ultimately get it right when they get into recovery. And, and that's, uh, again, another piece is it's not just 
abstinence. It's not just getting rid of a substance, it's building a new life. It's recovery, as SAMHSA talks about it, it, recovery is a process of change where the individual kind of regains their control of their life and, and, and moves toward health and wellness. Could you break down that word recycling? I, I have a sense of what it, what it means from the context, but I wanna make sure I'm on the same page. Well, when people, when people don't successfully make a change, they go back to thinking about it or they go back, some people go back to pre-contemplation and some people give up and say, I'm resigned, I can't, I can't do this. You know, and so they give up on change and stay in pre-contemplation and keep the behavior. Others move into contemplation uh, and thinking about it and others move into preparation and say, you know, well, I, I, I think I got close to doing it this time. I'm gonna try it again and I'm gonna make it happen this time. That's what we call recycling. And the recycling process is the way people learn how to get it all right so they can be successful. And, and that's the same process you do when you learn how to ski, when you learn how to ride a bike, when you learn how to do all kinds of things. You, you make mistakes, you fall, you, at, but you get up again and you start over again and you move through this again. Uh, and that's the hopeful part. Uh, the recycling is really the hopeful part of individuals struggling and, and family members who are struggling with, with addictions. You mentioned SAMHSA a moment ago. I'm hoping that you could say a little more about reputable resources on substance abuse and addiction for, for those who are wanting more information. Well, there's a wealth of information out there. There's also a lot of bad information. So I do think it's really important to look at the sites. Uh, SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health uh, Services Administration, <clears throat> they have a lot of materials. They have a lot of access to uh, services and they have a lot of information about different subgroups and populations and problems in those subgroups. Um, NIAAA, which focuses on alcohol uh, abuse and alcoholism, that's the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Um, they have what they've just developed, what they call a, a, um, a treatment navigator, uh, where what you do is it, it doesn't tell you which person to go to, but it tells you which dimensions that you should be looking for in any treatment that you get for your loved one or for you. And it gives you a way to kind of rate these, uh, the, the programs that you're considering on this dimensions that are really important to get good care. Um, NIDA has a lot of information about drug abuse and different kinds of drugs and uh, the effects of those different kinds of drugs uh, on the individual, as well as good information about the process of recovery. You know, there's a lot, uh, and I, if you have a mental health and a substance use disorder, NIMH also has some resources up there. Uh, and then all the professional associations also have resources, the American Psychological, the American Psychiatric, uh, where you could go on and look at some of those. I would just be careful when you're looking at some of the sites that promise a lot of stuff. And sometimes you get into a site that it just wants to get you to go to their program. Um, I would just be cautious about that. And, and, and not that that's bad, but that you need to examine it and find out what the program is. Uh, don't just kind of accept that, oh, we have a good success rate. I like your point about there's a lot of information out there and that's part of the reason why it's very helpful to have your input on a few of these more reputable resources to turn to. And you know, th this has just been such a fascinating conversation. 
Carlo, and I, and I really want to thank you for joining me, uh, Daniel Elker, to discuss the steps of making and maintaining behavior change. And as a reminder to listeners that this Psychology Hour episode from the National Register of Health Service Psychologists provides general information only and not formal mental health services. To, to access mental health care services, please consult with a health service psychologist, such as those who are available on findapsychologist.org.